Being able to sit in all of these pitch rooms, there's all these rooms that get set up where it's people pitching their ideas to get funding. And I sat in a room with Alex Rodriguez the other day and I was just blown away. And there were so many other people, just big name people that were in the room, but just from like a celebrity standpoint, he was probably like the most recognizable name. But I mean, it, it is to me is incredible. Um, just last Friday where we met, I was in a pitch room with uh, the MedStarter folks. That's the healthcare startup accelerator. And I was pitching my product, help.ai. It's help with two P's.ai. And that's um, helps prevent falls in hospitals. For those who don't know about falls in hospitals, it's a big, but they are going to summer school. So I'm glad about that. Because <laughs> yeah, some kind of break. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Just Capable podcast. Today I'm here with Brooks Wood, and we're going to be discussing his startups, forward thinking, and help AI. And I actually met Brooks through clubhouse and i think there's a lot of value that he's been bringing to the table today on the episode and we're going to talk about clubhouse to start off with and then we're going to go into medical startups and we're going to cover anything else in between that comes comes up in conversation so brooks thank you for joining me today i appreciate you coming on absolutely thank you for having me dan so we were before we started we were discussing clubhouse and how it's connecting people who would never in a thousand years be able to connect with the power of that audio app and you know, it's like every Marvel movie with great power comes great responsibility. You were saying how plugging with Alex Rodriguez the other day in a room clubhouse for me has just been, maybe not everybody see the value, but it's the moment I jumped onto this, I saw the instant value. And if you're a, if you're an entrepreneur looking to network or find funding, this is the place for you. Um, I sat in a room the other day, it was, there's so those of you don't know about clubhouse it's an audio only app and it's distraction free it's just audio and it allows you to essentially ha conduct a live event a live audio show a live radio show a live podcast a live trade show it's it's interesting how it works out but it's a big problem if you're in a hospital and you fall on the ground on the concrete you know, the chances of you breaking a hip are pretty significant and that extends your hospital stay gives you the ability you know you could get an infection there's all kinds of things that the results in it but um, it would have taken me, it would have taken me at least a month to get scheduled to get into this pitch and maybe two, two months before that of just networking, trying to understand what they were doing and where, and I probably would have needed to fly to it. And I just, I'm seeing so many deals happen so rapidly on this platform that I've never seen anything like it before, but that, that's just my, my clubhouse rant. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Because the problem that we run into with COVID is that the ability to conference network and go to places and, and do that type of work completely disappeared. And so when I got on the clubhouse, I was like, Oh, this is a, this is a huge breath of fresh air. I feel like I can go have that conversation at the coffee shop with my friends and like, Oh wow, I can connect to these people. Oh wow. Look who's joining next. Oh, I didn't like And granted it has its issues. It's got a lot of issues with its security. It's got a lot of issues with um, people who are moderators acting on their own self-interest or mm -hmm. being bad perpetrators on people who are in a room with in their, they're letting the whole moderator green bean go to their head and trying to use it as a status symbol. <laughs> it really means nothing, which cracks me up. People have been trying to find the balance, so to speak with clubhouse. And I think for me, the balance is small rooms, uh, meeting people like you sitting in on those pitch sessions. So you really have to find your tribe. You really have to find the room that, that works for you and the people that work for you. And 
think it's got a lot of potential, but I think also much like our favorite attractions, our favorite restaurants, once they become like too popular, there reaches a certain uh, lack of return on investment to where basically does it, did we ruin it? Because now everyone's there, like let's say like a, uh, you know, famous national parks and things like that. And like places that we travel to abroad, or is it continuing to be a positive thing and, and grow exponentially? And that's, that's going to be a tough one because like we as human beings, when we tend to oversaturate stuff, it tends to, to wreck it, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Oversaturate is probably not even giving enough justice. You know, it's, I, I liken it to like the Louvre. It's amazing to visit the Louvre at night when nobody's there, but trying to be there with thousands of other people, you you know, you're, yeah, just get a bit of a better picture of the Mona Lisa on your computer than you would there. Yeah. And I, I, I bet Clubhouse gets to that point in the next few months. And I'm just I'm so excited how it is right now. And I, I could definitely see it um, lose its luster. Like you said, the return on investment just probably won't be there. But well, they're doing some really cool stuff, like allowing people to like monetize it and get tips and run rooms and clubs that are that are, is, is really cool. So I think what is going to happen is once they open it up to everyone you know, I think, I think the, the rooms are going to be paid for rooms or they're going to be by invite only rooms. And then like those rooms will be where people like you and me will tend to migrate to because we won't mm-hmm. be able to do the hallway anymore. Cause it'll just be like too saturated. So it's like, okay, I need to go to my, my private club on here where I can maintain this community that we have at the moment. So being on clubhouse, you've no doubt come across a million rooms talking about nfts oh god um this 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 podcast is now an nft <laughs> <laughs> everything could be an nft it cracks me up it's it's so funny to me it's just so funny that some random guy can sell his art and all of a sudden everybody's all over it i mean it's a game-changing idea and it's really cool and i think yeah you know i've had ideas of you know could could we replace like Ticketmaster with nfts or um could you fund companies with nfts could could i could i as a startup create five or six nfts at specific values that someone then buys that could could tie the um equity later on obviously there's the whole sec and securities issue that, that could abound by that but there's just there's a really a lot of weird things going on right now and not, not even weird just weird in like a cool way that you know weird is strange and different um but it's just it's interesting like what, what really did it for me was seeing that i want to say it was like venezuela um moved got rid of their currency because it, it collapsed anyway a few years ago and now they're only on bitcoin and i think that's it's really interesting because if everybody gets on bitcoin what does that do to the environment and power and so on and so forth it's just i just find it really interesting yeah argentina went to bitcoin too because of the insolvency issues that they had are you familiar with the comedian tim Dillon? yes oh man his riffs on nfts are amazing i'm a i'm a big tim Dillon fan and i think he just moved here to austin actually because of Joe Rogan and yeah, everyone should go look at his riff on NFTs because it's hilarious because he, he takes that. Let's just take this to the, the ninth degree of complete bullshit and see what that looks like. And he takes you <laughs> on that trip and it's amazing because, and because it's all true. That's, that's the crazy part. It's all true because he's like, well, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna steal his material, but just go check out Tim Dillon's riffs on NFTs. They're, they're fucking amazing. I will check that out. Is that is that are those some newer things? Uh, yeah, I'll check out okay. his Instagram and his YouTube, and just look up Tim Dillon, uh, D I L L O N. He's on tour right now, but his riffs on NFTs and Clubhouse are just amazing. And I was listening to uh, Eric Weinstein on the uh, Joe Rogan podcast the other day talking about 
you know, the ridiculousness of Clubhouse and, you know, people think there's some people who are arguing that Clubhouse will be the uh, end of podcasts. And as a podcaster experiencing uh, Clubhouse like now at this time, I don't see that happening because that's Clubhouse is its its own thing and podcasting is its own thing as well, even though they both kind of marry well with each other, to be honest. Well, I just think that just like what you've been doing, this is how you grow your podcast. This is how you find guests and yes. interact with interesting people you would have never met before. I mean, I've always wanted to start a podcast and my, my, my biggest reason for not starting it was just thinking that I didn't have enough people to talk to and enough content. Oh, you, and then when you need Clubhouse to start came one. around, I was like, whoa, okay, here we go. Yeah. It's like, you need to, I mean, well, it's funny. So like on, on uh, Clubhouse, they have like five things that you need to do as a business person and it cracks me up because they're like okay and this is all like the bigger players on clubhouse which mm-hmm. you know they've got like a life coaching plan for you or they've got grant cardone the grant cardone yep. 10 times factor and a lot of people were like okay you should have a podcast nowadays you should have a business you should write a book you should have a blog and then you should have products to sell and or you should be doing like uh online uh products and content and that's all well and good but Jesus, you have to have one hell of a team to produce all that stuff. Or you have to have one hell of a resource network to produce all that stuff. Because that all takes, that all that is very doable. But you've got to have your core income established. You've got to have your core team established. Because to do all those things and, you know, like us, have a family or have other stuff going on, that is a tall order. You could just be busy just trying to produce just your podcast for the content, let alone the because what is Grant Cardone? He's the he's the guy that's like you need to produce six hundred plus pieces of content a week. He's or a month. He's like uh, like Gary Vee in that regard. And yeah. I just don't know how those guys can manage to get that rate well, of return on uh, content. It's it's a lot. So I think they don't make money off of that right now. That's the long game type stuff. And when I say the long game type stuff, because they're building a brand around who they are and what they are, and they're trying to become an organic piece of the environment. They're trying to be like you know city traffic or just a constant background noise that you're aware of. And uh, so like if, for instance, if you want to go like Gary Vaynerchuk and you want to go down that route, the guys over at SOAR, Paul Allen, they've, who he founded uh, ancestry.com. They've got a whole program where they help you do all of that stuff. And they've have, you know, price wise and everything, it's pretty good, but they can do that for you. They can take this one podcast alone and turn this into a hundred different pieces of content they can take all my Instagram and turn that into thousands of pieces of content. And it's all about just kind of cutting out little sections of the flesh, so to speak, to make all that content and having good VAs and a good team where that's all they do. They're your whole content generation people. They'll manage your uh, social media and everything else for you so you can focus on business. But producing content at any level is a full-time job. Before I get into my my new idea, because it kind of, Maybe I'll just talk about this first and then we can jump into yeah. the other stuff. Um, so my, my goal this year was to found seven new different things this year. Um, okay. The company I founded forward thinking we, we treat, we track hand hygiene monitoring in hospitals. It sounds really boring. All, all it really is, is we, we know people wear a badge that tracks them throughout a hospital. Mm-hmm. And when they enter into a room, um, they're required to wash their hands. And s- surprisingly, that doesn't happen a lot. Um, We'll go into hospitals with with this, this system, and they have uh, what they call a secret shopper who will um, just sit on the on a nursing unit and watch 
people wash their hands and then yeah. they'll stated compliance. Um, well, when they do that, they say they're in the high 90 percentiles, which is which is where the uh, Joint Commission, that's the, the, the organization that uh, accredits hospitals, mm-hmm. that, that that's where they want you to be. Recently, they they dropped it from like the high 90s to like the low 90s, high 80s, because what we have been founding, and I'm, I'm sure they found this too, when we would go in with one of these hand hygiene systems, this this isn't monitoring just when the secret shopper is there. This is monitoring all day, every day. And you do this for about two weeks and you'll find that their hand hygiene compliance rates are really like 30%. And the reason that hand hygiene is such a big deal in hospitals is if I'm a nurse and I'm interacting with a patient who might have some crazy, crazy super bug and I don't wash my hands when I leave and I walk into the room next door, highly, highly likely of transmitting that whatever they had to the person next door who doesn't have that. However, typically if you're in the hospital, that means that you're sick and your immune system's pretty weak. So, um, that's why hand washing is such a big deal. It's like it's like a baby. Babies, you have to constantly wash your hands because they don't have an immune system. Um, so the same type of thing occurs in a hospital and really making sure that these people are washing their hands and so forth is it's turned into a, a bigger deal than what most people would have thought of. But to get back to my point, um, from March to October last year, so the moment COVID hit until it started, until the hospitals could really get their arms around things, um, our business was in a very weird spot. Like, so I'm a business owner and I'm thinking about what during the coronavirus, what would I pivot towards that would, that I could gain from this? So I'm a healthcare person. I've spent most of my career in acute care hospitals providing technology and I'm scratching my head. I'm like, gosh, I, if, if I'm providing a ventilator or a vaccine, they'll talk to me right now. But if I'm providing anything else outside of a vaccine, ventilator, gowns, gloves, and masks, they won't talk to me. So we went from March to October yep. of really no sales in our business because we couldn't talk to our customers. Yep. And yeah. that really, that really caught me off guard. I was really freaked out because I, as soon as the pandemic hit, you know, this is morbid. I was like, well, um, I guess we're in the right place here to capitalize on this. Um, not realizing that the hospitals weren't even close to being prepared for this. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. We saw that too. So same, same exact thing here in Texas in our honest, frankly, the entire United States, it was, those things, if you weren't a provider of those things, they didn't have time for you and or money for you. So I, I knew that I had to start diversifying. So I I spent that lull of, you know, building my business, building new things to go along with that business, really spending that time to get my team really dialed in, um, use that opportunity to, you know, get rid of the folks that I weren't going to cut it long term that I, you know, needed. And I use that opportunity to hire people. So we built out this really strong team. I spent March to October building out this really strong team so that once it was built out, I had the uh, freedom and opportunity to go start up some other things because I was like, there's no way I'm going to get caught in this again, because that was just, un- it was it was crazy. And then then you're stuck in that, just trying to get a job in that environment is also a whole nother rigmarole, right? And they're available, but it's a, it's a job. It's a, it's a employer's market right now. That is, that is for sure. So, um, I knew I'm an entrepreneur. I don't like having a boss. Um, my boss is an asshole and that's me. And I, I prefer it that way. So, um, I would, I would rather not have to, you know, talk to somebody else. So I I said, I have to start many, many things this year. So I I landed on doing seven different things. One of them was the help.ai and that's, that's where you met me. And really what that is, is that's, um, 
that's a camera that sits into a patient room in a hospital or it sits in like uh, the residential like long-term care facility and it's just ambient intelligence that just sits in the background and it watches and it looks around and it understands what's going on it's leveraging some ai that that we've created um there's a lot that's open sourced as well that we kind of folded into this um and then i reached out to nasa i found through my research like, so I, you know i was like okay i'm done with this i'm not going to I'm not going to make excuses. I wasn't prepared and I, I'm going to own that. I'm going to make sure that I am prepared now. So I started just going, what are all the resources for entrepreneurs? And I found that NASA has this technology transfer program. NASA will transfer IP to you um, if you have a novel use case for their existing IP. And the reason is because NASA is federally funded. So all of the patents that NASA has are actually all of our patents. If you're a U.S. citizen, it's technically your patent. Now, NASA won't just give that to anybody willy-nilly. However, um, we so I found out that this this program exists, and I sat down and I met with them. I already had some IP written around this AI thing that we're talking about, and it was a natural fit. So they found three other patents that they have, and what we're working together now on is to fold that in together. Um, and because I had already had some IP written, I qualified also for their partnership program where they will um, – jointly write the IP together and then give you exclusivity. And there's a couple of things with that. One is if you're an established business and you find some cool technology, then they're going to charge you for it. And I never really got that far because the product that I'm talking to them about is a startup. And their startup program is great because if you qualify and you, know, you, you check all their boxes, it's a somewhat of a long process. You have to meet with their patent attorneys and their high-level engineers. Um, it's definitely not something that if if you if you aren't, aren't don't have some type of background in like space and you go to them to try to get a patent to do something in space, they probably won't give it to you. You know, they're going to give this to people that have highly qualified background. So yeah, they're going to be a hard they're going to be a hard pass on. I've seen that happen with some people. Absolutely, and so, but because of my healthcare experience and what I was bringing to the table and what they had, they said you definitely qualify for this partnership program and you qualify for our startup program because this business isn't more than three years old or two years old. So then what's happening is, is that I'm going to get all of this IP from NASA, um, essentially at no charge, to grow our business. And um, I would have never known about this if I wouldn't have been down in the dumps, just angry at myself for not being prepared with our business. And anybody and anybody that listen to me, I'm telling this to people because I think it's just, I think it's a huge resource that's just not out there. And there's lots of people that know about it, but the programs and the grants that are out there. Um, I saw a ni National Science Foundation grant that was awarded to a startup that was providing um, um, metrics for a hotel. Nothing to do with anything you would expect the National Science Foundation to put, put a grant towards, but it was there. So really what I'm getting at is what I found during this COVID lull was that there are so many amazing government programs out there that nobody even talks to you about. And if you just spend some time and energy and some effort, it's there because so many startups just want to go after the DC route and get funding that way. And it's, you know, it's not, you know, they'll ask for a bajillion dollars. I sat in a clubhouse pitch room not too long ago and these guys, it was like speed dating for investors. And then you had like a two minute pitch and they would move on. And it started getting to the point where they shut down the room. They're like, guys, this is crazy. We're going to reschedule this, but stop asking for a billion dollars and telling me that you're going to return my investment to me in 20 years. Yeah. Right. And so many yeah. people make that mistake. So many people make that mistake. Well, what's interesting that you bring that up because um, DARPA is doing the exact same thing right now. And predominantly, almost every major university in the United States is trying to do a very similar model right now. 
there are so, there is so much technology and IP sitting on the shelves of universities and you know other government agencies that they can they will never have the ability to action. So they're actively looking for people to come in, take their patents and IP off the shelf and monetize it. And if you are someone like you who's got the background, the resources, and the ability, they will gladly partner with you for a fee, of course. But with your deal with NASA, that's that's a very good setup because I've seen people go into NASA with very legitimate projects and and other technology, and NASA just straight up uh, shut them down because they just were like, no, you're not a right fit for us, unfortunately. So, you know, we're going to go a different direction. And I think SpaceX is a perfect example of what you're speaking of, believe it or not, because NASA has given SpaceX, you know, I'm speaking, uh, uh, what's, you know, I'm speaking of my own observations, but basically NASA has partnered with SpaceX to do a lot of stuff. So I, I guarantee you there's been a lot of IP transfer and there's been a lot of technology transfer from NASA to SpaceX you know, to one, get them off the ground and going <laughs> speaking figuratively and literally speaking. And I think uh, that's becoming more and more common because we have to be more competitive and more flexible at, with technologies. We move into the future to, you know, stay ahead of the pack or compete with other countries. Well, I think it's really interesting. You mentioned that because I, I recently, as I was going through this, the, this, this research, trying to understand this SpaceX was one of the things that I, I came across as part of this. And what I found out is that, interestingly enough, their company values is that they don't have IP and they won't ever create IP. And if they do create IP, it's open sourced. So I think I think what you just mentioned, that makes a ton of sense that it, it must just be that they can get away with that because they are getting all of this transfer from NASA and they don't really need to have their own IP. Because, you know, for forward thinking, we went out and got all our own IP and that was that was very expensive. Oh, yeah. Um, and yeah. that's mentioned hard. And I don't know if it holds up in court right? Like, well, you don't really know it until you, 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 you test it out. I have two patents myself and patents predominantly boil down to if you can even protect it or not. So mm -hmm. there's two types of patents. There's a patent where it's so complicated that only maybe a handful of people on earth could recreate it because of the complexity of it or, you know, per se your secret sauce. Then you have patents that are high barrier entry because of just the technology needed to get to it. And then there's patents where, you know, it's easy to knock off and the only way you can protect it is through, you know, legal action, be very litigious. So when you do a patent, you know, you got to look at like, okay, if someone were to you know, knock off a product, that's pretty easy. But if someone's knocking off a code, that's a lot harder. Or if someone's, you know, knocking off a AI system, that's even, you know, more expensive and harder to do, period. So you're in the right spot, at least for the barrier to entry for AI and other things is, is very high. Because most of those patents, what I've found are they're either government that it took them out originally, or it's like a Facebook or a Google. Yeah. Um, and they've, you know, they have that pretty well locked down. Yeah. And they can defend it. They get, they have all the lawyers and the money to uh, defend it and they can, they can do it until the cows come home. But that's really cool yeah. that you got that opportunity because you're probably one of the few people I've talked to that's actually made it past that screening process and made it into actually working with them. We're not, we're not finished yet and we're not completely finalized with it, but we definitely gone through there. There's like four levels. We've gone through the, th the three levels and now we're, now we're with the, uh, the attorneys. Well, there's actually, there's another thing going on too. So AFWorks, which was the air force, um, uh, you know, innovation office that they're doing, they're actually breaking off into 
a SpaceWorks innovation office now too, because they were getting a lot of uh, products and they were getting a lot of offers on things that were, you know, for outside the atmosphere or low earth orbit. And AFWorks was looking for, you know, more, you know, earth-based things such as like better helmets, you know, better training devices, AI and training and virtual training for pilots. They weren't looking for new satellites or anti-satellite technology or, you know, anything else. So people were still bringing it to them because the whole idea behind AFWorks was that if the Wright brothers wanted to walk in and present their idea of a flying airplane today, they wouldn't have the access to get the airplane, you know, to the stage. They would be completely uh, white noised out because of everything else going on. So they were trying to make it work that open door policy where the the people with the innovation for the next level stuff could be heard. And it it worked pretty well for a while, but with COVID, they went from getting a couple hundred applicants a year to tens of thousands of applicants in one year because of COVID and everything mm-hmm. going on. So they got completely overwhelmed. You know, we're talking about saturating things and overwhelming things. They got completely overwhelmed with everything, to be honest. And so now they got SpaceWorks coming out. So I'm interested to see how that plays out. That's really interesting because my, my, my wife, um, I guess we mentioned to you, we, we co-found a lot of things together. We do all of our engineering together and we just run businesses together. And the one thing that she's working on right now is adapting um, machine vision to handle like the orbital debris program. And she's just been networking with so many different people. Um, so it's interesting to hear that they're creating the SpaceWorks program because she was working with AFWorks um, and then she got passed over to the... Um, the Space Force um, down in Colorado Springs, since we're in, we're in Denver. Um, so it's just, it's very interesting. So sorry, I didn't mean to diverge. Oh, no, it's, well, it's just the processes and the industries adapting. And, you know, now that they moved to Alabama and they're relocating from Colorado, uh, luckily, you know, you know, obviously you don't want to talk with them through Clubhouse because, you know, it's not secure. <laughs> but, <laughs> but she can, because of, you know, how COVID has, created this effective telework situation, no matter where they go, your wife will be able to have good comms, be able to work with them as if they're in the same room. And we're talking about how this last year, things have accelerated. We're talking about medicine and other things. Same thing in wartime. When there is a, when we put our minds to things and we push ourselves towards end goals, we get things accomplished amazingly fast and in amazingly effective ways when we all are, you know, pushing the boat the same direction or the, you know, working together. And as we peel back from COVID, you're going to see like efforts, you know, downgrade, you're going to see things not prioritized anymore like they were. So things are going to open back up again to, you know, a broader product offering and product service offering. But I think the silver lining behind COVID was it kind of put us into a hyper innovation realm for the last year. So everything like we're talking about is just hyper innovation. And a lot of that has to do thanks to the communities and people, everyday people coming up with ideas and solutions and then finding the right backers to put those solutions into play. That's how we get through things is when we all come together. But, you know, being, it's very interesting, you know, being an entrepreneurial couple, that's gotta be really rough because you're both in the mix and entrepreneurship is very like you and I were speaking earlier before the podcast entrepreneurship is very, very unforgiving. So how do you guys balance your entrepreneurial efforts together? Mm, That's a great question. Um, So the way that we've been handling it is 
good or for bad, COVID kind of helped us slow down a little bit so that we could catch our breath and, and get things reorganized so that we can handle that. And we've just been dividing and conquering. Um, I had a meeting that was a casual meeting earlier this morning um, with some people that I know, and it, it, was, it was somewhat of a serious business meeting, but it was enough where I knew everybody and it wasn't a problem. So I was able to just have my daughter with me so that my wife could go on to her meeting that she needed to not have a distraction with. So we've been trying to divide and conquer that way, but also taking hyper advantage of the climate. Everybody has their kids around for the most part if they have children. So everyone's a little bit more understanding than maybe they, what they used to have been. Um, so that, that number one helps. Number two, having the time to plan made this change happen for us better than it could have. Because, you know, we, we have like a family calendar put together and everybody kind of knows their little places and it's not perfect and it definitely fluctuates. But my two older boys have been fantastic um, because they've been, you know, in this remote homeschool program for the last, you know, for this school year. Um, it's allowed them to learn in a different way that I've never seen before. So we're all kind of like doing everything in this very asynchronous way than what we used to be. We used to be very like synchronous or very linear in how we had to do everything, right? It was like, take the kids to school, pick them up, um, take them to school, hit a couple of meetings in the car and then go to the office and then sit in some meetings, maybe have a lunch meeting, um, actually try to accomplish something after lunch meeting and then hurry up and go back and, and grab the kids. Um, and there was all these daycare expenses that were associated with it. And while it's been very stressful and really hard to manage, um, having the ability to have our own businesses and have say in how we work and what we're doing and be able to set our schedules has it's been very, it's, it's been almost liberating, right? Being able to have the kids home with us and having some more flexibility there has given us a crazy different um, view on life, where if yeah. we could have been traveling this whole time, it might have even been better. Um, however, um, our kids, I feel like are suffering because their learning just hasn't been as good as it could be because they're not with their teachers, right? So there's yeah. like this weird give and take that comes from it. Well, having two disruptors in the house, you know, I'm, a, I'm the disruptor in in you know my relationship with my wife my wife's more of the you know let's stick to like try and true past proven methods for employment and other stuff where i'm like hey you know we need to i need you out there i need to disrupt things i need to shake things up i like to shake the box let it reset and uh create things and so she's a good balance in my household so imagine like having two very you know talented disruptive people who are very creative in the same household that is impressive because that is a very unique situation where it works for you guys. I could, I honestly couldn't do it any other way. And we just sort of fell into this. We didn't know that this about ourselves when we got married, but when it, when we started doing this, it, it, it was this weird, like encouragement of one another, right? She would encourage me. I would encourage her and it would just go back and forth to a point where we were both not afraid to quit our jobs and make this leap. Um, Quitting my job was probably the single hardest thing. I spent two years trying to quit my job to, to start these companies. And um, I wish I would have started sooner. I, I don't know why I was so afraid. Um, I guess it's the unknown and, and not be willing to bet on yourself. It's, um, it's fear. It, it, you know, and that's what it boils down to is just straight fear. It's, you know, how am I going to pay my bills? How am I going to support my family? Or how am I going to support myself? And it, it really takes a lot of educated risk and it sounds like it took you two years to, you know, after doing all your analysis to get there, which is, which is smart because if you just jump into things without thinking it through, you're going to fail. 
and there's a balance there, right? There's a balance of jump because I have an, uh, an advisor of mine once told me, he goes, you know, the diff- you can tell the difference between an entrepreneur and not an entrepreneur is you put an entrepreneur in a room with a pile of, of horse shit. They know there's a pony in that pile of horse shit somewhere and they're going to dig through it. <laughs> there's compost and we're going to sell that shit. <laughs> mm-hmm, exactly. And, that, and that's always stuck with me. I thought, huh, okay. Entrepreneurship just means having uh, unlimited amounts of positive outlook against what you're going after because every day, every second of every day will give you a reason to say this isn't going to work and just to quit. Yeah, it's all risk and reward. And you do – so it sounds like you're a lot like me where and – I, and I drive my friends crazy because my friends are in the business world are very much, you know, do one thing, do it well, do it better than everyone and make a lot of money doing it. And I'm very much of the opinion through my own experiences to you have stability through diversity. And what we're talking mm-hmm. about, like when you were saying that you wanted to have like seven new things uh, developed this year for business to, in order to create that stability, that's how I think. And it drives my friends crazy because they're like, well, how are you going to do all this stuff? And I'm like, well, this is how you do it. You come up with the idea, you build it out to a certain point, and then you form your team. And your team is what's going to help you run it and everything else. But that takes money. And that takes effort and it takes a lot of work. And so if you're really good at building teams and finding what you need, it's probably going to work as long as it's a you know decent enough idea and it's niche enough. I, I think that's right. Um, what I find interesting, people that are, so I, you know, I'm, there's like a local Vistage group here that I'm a part of. And um, oftentimes everyone not everyone but a lot of the entrepreneurs the ceos in this group will, will have the same same problem and it's, it all focuses around not having the right team in place and being afraid to mix things up a little bit to move people around and to make sure that that team is so damn good that you could you could never come back to the company ever again and it would just thrive and be beyond successful without you and that took me a long time to learn that i am not the company that everybody else here is the company. And as soon as I started doing that, I became way more successful in our business. And we started, you know, converting way more customers and sales as a result, because I allowed my team to do what they need to do. They were no longer reliant upon me to go make the rain, right? They went out and made the rain themselves. Yeah. Are you familiar with, uh, have you met Patch Baker on Clubhouse yet? Um, how do you spell it? Pat Baker? No. Patch, P-A-T-C-H-B-A-K-E-R. So, so Patch was a uh, a U.S. Marine, and he got injured in Iraq, I believe, and got medicaled out. And he started a marketing company, did pretty well. And then he started becoming like an investor, then a uh, business development consultant. And that's all he does is he goes out, and he's like, I'm going to create the best damn team I can create based on what I learned from the Marines. And I'm going to execute these plans and these things I want to go execute. And he was pretty good at it. And so he's, and he's a contemporary of ours as well. And in a very short period of time, he was hugely successful and patchly what, you know, he tells us people and he'll, he'll even tell this to anyone that asks him about it. Patch had a vision and he had good skills, but he went out and he literally was able to get the best people possible. And then now what he does is his teams run everything. He's called in for different decisions that need to be made, but for the most part, he's empowered his team. So it's one thing to build a team. It's a whole nother uh, issue to empower a team to make decisions. And when you're an entrepreneur, you need to be able to go to your people and say, Hey, look, these are your left, right limits, execute the vision and the intent. And this is, these are the things that I need to be called about. 
other than that, let your team run it and let them, let them excel and let, you know, and recognize their efforts and recognize, you know, what they've added and obviously re reward them, especially if they're a great team, because, you know, everyone should be lifted with the, with the effort. It shouldn't be just like one person makes all the money. You need to like lift the members of your team up with you. Otherwise you're going to lose your team because if they really are running the show and excelling, they need to come up with you as well. And that's how you create that loyalty. And that's how you keep, you continue to excel. And there's this, there's this great book, um, you know, how to, how to uh, make friends and, uh, win over people. I totally just butchered that name by the way. But anyway, long story short, it's the bus. You have a bus and you're each, each, uh, entrepreneurship effort is that bus and you're putting people on the bus and you're picking the driver, you're picking everyone on that bus. And it's, about putting the people in the right seats on the bus and make sure everyone on the bus wants to go to where you're going. And if they don't, they need to shuffle people around on the bus to get them in the right place and let people off the bus and put them on another bus or let them go do other things. And the whole point of that is that the team should be able to excel no matter who leaves and who comes in. And it's all about just making sure everyone's in the right fit. But that's what, wow. that's what, that's what patch talks a lot about and how he's successful. I was just looking at his profile. I love the, uh, if you're scared, it's most likely your own bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's hard to recognize your own short, your, your own shortcomings and it's hard to recognize your weaknesses. It's easy to recognize your strengths because that's what we all lean on. But when it comes to your weaknesses, that's where you got to put the ego aside and that's where you got to admit like, Hey, you know, <laughs> I have to be humble because I don't know everything. And like, even like when, you know, when people would ask me about the podcast, when I started it, they were like, you know, what do you need help with? And I was like, I need help with everything. There is no ego here. I don't know shit about podcasting and I'm learning on the fly as we go. So if you have some advice to share with me, I am all ears because I will never claim to be an expert at podcasting. Yeah. And the day that I become an expert in something is the day that I'm bored with it and I have to move on to something else. Yeah. Cause I, I it's like, it's like the being the smartest person in the room syndrome. I could got to get out of there. If you're the smartest person in the room, you're never going to learn anything. Well, I also like being uncomfortable because when you're mm -hmm. uncomfortable, that's when it's interesting. I'm so glad you mentioned that. It just sounds like me too all the time here, but I am the same way. I love to be uncomfortable. It took me a long time to get there, but, um, yeah, I love to be uncomfortable because that is so many, that is, that is the time when things happen for you. Yeah. And it is, don't get me wrong. It is really great when you're a subject matter expert and you know it all and you can just really like kick ass and take names. But as good as that feels, it's better. I feel better when I'm a student and I'm learning because I feel like I'm growing as a person. Otherwise, like you said, you get bored. It's like, shoot, I'm not, I'm not on my, being forced to be on my toes. I got to go out there and get uncomfortable again. Yeah, that's, for me, the hardest part has been that startup energy at times to go after new things. It's so easy to be comfortable, right? And then you get you feel uncomfortable. You're like, oh, it, it's like this weird fear reaction. Um, you have to like override that part of your brain. And I've, I'm still not good at it. But sometimes you just have to one foot in front of the other and, and believe in yourself. Well, do you think that that desire for uncomfortableness comes from your upbringing? I think so. Uh, one thing we didn't touch on is as I mentioned, I have, I have three younger kids. And, um, when I was 17, um, I was, I was a naughty kid in school. Um, 
I, I got my girlfriend pregnant and I, I, so I have a 20 year old daughter at this point. And so I was a teen dad going through a lot of these things and it really, I, I could have come out at one of two ways. I could have just come out just being just like a cold, hard person just because people were mean to what to me, to me, I would be at the grocery store with my daughter and they would look at me and they would say, this one lady one time, she goes, I feel so sorry for your daughter. And I was like, Oh my God, harsh. Do I look that, do I look that young? Do I look that incapable? Oh my goodness. You know, um, that really, it really helped me to put things into perspective. Just those types of experiences, having to have a ton of responsibility at an early age, having to provide for my family and so on and so forth. It really, it really put me in this place of inadvertently thriving for that discomfort that I experienced early on in life um, during that period, because I didn't like being uncomfortable. It drove me crazy when people would judge me or look at me weird. I didn't know what to do about it. And I started really growing into my skin and understanding that, oh, it doesn't matter what they think. And they probably think the same thing about themselves when they go home and look in the mirror. I need to stop being so hard on myself and be great on myself and know that if I put one foot in front of the other, all these amazing things happen and all the negativity around you that surrounds it is just noise, right? It's just others that failed at something or didn't even try and feel like you shouldn't succeed if they hadn't. And that to me is probably the hardest part about entrepreneurship is all the noise around you, right? Everybody has an opinion and everybody wants to tell you the right way to do something and they have a better way to do it or they've done blah, 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 blah. And it got really frustrating to me because I started so early on in my career doing these types of things. Um, I quickly outgrew my mentors. Yeah. I quickly outgrewing people that I could rely on to give me advice because what I found was they didn't, they didn't even get to this level of business. So then when, when Clubhouse came around, I'm like this dumb freshman in college now just <laughs> learning from the masters sucking all of this in they're just such and they're just so simple dumb things and you're just like oh that's how you do it that makes sense yeah well it's like i heard the other day they were like you know when you're podcasting they're like 30 percent is content 70 percent is marketing the podcast and i was like uh i you know I'm, I'm not even to the top of this mountain and then i just found out there's everest out there so one of the businesses that we're starting so um i I, I spent a lot of time traveling and just going all across the world, um, installing these, these systems and these hospitals and selling them and you're talking help AI, right? about it. Help AI. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, this is where help AI kind of like der derived towards. So, um, be because of this, right. We gained this, this experience that not a lot of people would have. And I would start to see these, these pockets of, of problems that needed to be solved. Right. So help AI was one of these, but the other thing that we're working through is, um, I live very close to my office. I'm, I'm like a three minute walk from my house to my office. And I did that very much in, on purpose so that I would never have to have a commute again. And it's been, it's been life changing for me. I'm able to just to, to speak to the, how did my wife and I do it? Um, because our office is so close to our house, we're able to just switch on and off at a moment's notice. And you know, if we need to do something very professional in a very professional setting, we can just run to the office real quick and handle that. And if we need to come back home or the kids can go with us and it gives us a nice, um, you know, it's just different scenery. Yeah. You, need, you need like a being, workspace. Yeah, absolutely. You have to, you, you, you cannot get things accomplished if you don't have a place where you can hang your hat and have zero distraction and you left your pen in one spot and it's still there. Yeah. Right? Um, your kid has gotten it. Oh God. I, I, I was talking to my friend yesterday on the phone and he's like, I can't find my charger. I was like, well, if your kids are like mine, look under their bed. Sure enough. That's where his charger <laughs> was. Right. Like, 
chargers in our house are like gold. We probably spent more on chargers in our house than we have on like the actual phones to charge them. Yeah, pro tip right there. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but but anyway, be- because we're so close to our office, we're also very close to our community here, and that, that's the other thing from like an entrepreneur perspective that it took me a long time to understand. You've got to reach out to your local community and start leveraging your local governments to help you. They want help on things. They don't know anything really. And they're, they're up to you as your sub, subject matter expert for some help. Yeah. So if you have a business and, you're, and you know something really well and it somehow can apply, reach out to your local or you know, your, just your city government. So we live in Littleton, Colorado, and Littleton has this really cool um, old downtown that hasn't changed since the 1900s. So our office was built in like 1893 has that, you know, it's the exposed brick, you know, all of that. We went the you know, startup route many, many years ago, and we still have that space. But what we started seeing was during COVID, everybody's businesses were extremely effective. So I was, you know, in this mindset of how can I solve healthcare? But then I was like, gosh, everybody around me is struggling. So what we did was we started talking to our local businesses. Okay. Hey, do you have a podcast? And they're like, no, well, like you should start one. Um, do you, how, what, what your website looks like garbage. Can I help you with that? So, um, one of my, one of the per- people that I brought in, um, to my business, they're really great at marketing. So I said, Hey, would you be interested in starting a marketing company? So, um, we started in tandem, just visiting all the local businesses, literally just right out my front door. There's 20 businesses that all needed help. And we were able to get three of these businesses at 5,000 a month um, to do their marketing for them. And we're pushing out crazy amounts of content. So that conversation we're having earlier about all that content. Yeah, that is, it's a chore. And I don't, I don't even have to be involved in it. I don't know how my team is keeping up with it, but we have three people, right? We have three customers where we're pushing out 2.8 posts across seven social media platforms every day. Yeah. It's the new community service. So it just, it really, um, it, it really found to be, we found it be, to be this, this need where there's just so many entrepreneurs out there that just, they're stuck. They're stuck in this scenario where they don't know what to do, right? And it's, what I found is it's so much easier to be the outside looking in of what they should do that they haven't been doing versus being the inside looking out. Like for my companies, our marketing is terrible, we don't have a lot of marketing. We probably should do much more. Although the healthcare side has been really, I've been really trying to like figure out the right, the right channels for this. Yeah. And it's, it's just been interesting. So anyway, that was just a quick little diversion there, but you know, it's, it's really what's been helping us to, um, you know, get through, get through these weird lulls. Yeah. And when you were worried about a thousand different issues with your business, it's really hard to see the writing on the wall because you have so many distractions in front of you. And I find myself to be much more, in some cases, much more effective and, uh, you know, giving like the right guidance to other people's businesses because I can look at it very objectively and be like, hey, these things need to get done. But then when you come back to, you know, certain types of business that you're doing, it's much, much harder to see those potholes because you're busy driving the car. It's kind of like being a, uh, a passenger in a car. When you're the passenger, it's much easier to navigate, see the dangers on the road, the hazards, everything else. But when you're driving the car, you're focused on the performance of the car, your speed, the environment, not hitting everyone else. So it's hard for you to be objective and to see those things unless you, like during COVID, get a chance to take a knee and look around.
Oh, did I lose you? Sorry. Um, that's such a good way to describe it. Um, to take, you know, take that knee and just like look around and understand. I think, you know, it's as an entrepreneur, it's so hard to just pause and look around. Oh yeah. Maybe early when you started, you paused because you knew the like the cool thing that nobody else had that is your your niche into the market. But once you start executing, it's so hard to just take a step back and look around. Yeah. Well, one thing that caught my eye when you were talking about help AI during the pitch session on Clubhouse is I actually had a friend of mine. So he, um, we were, this you know goes back to my military time. When we were lieutenants, we were doing a land nav range out in uh, Fort Knox, Kentucky. And we were out there in the middle of the woods, pitch black at night. We're navigating with no like uh, lights or any visual aids. And we're going through the forest. And he literally hit a old like Civil War era well and fell in it. And this guy went down like 30, 40 feet into this well. And, uh, suffered some really severe injuries. We had to call in a black Hawk and rescue him. And luckily the person that was with him did a great job in getting him assistance and helping to get him out of that hole. So when he was back at the military hospital, they were, they were trying to patch him up. They're trying to take x-rays. Well, they didn't realize the severity of his injury. So they stood him up for an x-ray, which they never should have done in the first place, but they just, you know, they didn't know any better. So he gets an x-ray and passes out. Well, as, as he passes out, he falls and suffers even worse. He suffers even more injuries on top of what he already was suffering. And so the falling in the hospitals, that's what caught my attention when you were pitching it. Cause I was like, Oh shoot. I was like, I know lots of people that have fallen and injured themselves even worse in hospitals than possibly the initial injury was. So that really caught my eye when you said that. So on top of like help AI. So have, do you want to tell people what help AI does while you're in the hospital? Absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah. help.ai is is a camera that sits in the hospital and it watches and it understands what is going on. It's leveraging artificial intelligence, specifically machine vision. Um, and they can de- detect if people come into like a patient room, for instance. So in a hospital sit- setting, right, you're a patient and you're, you're in a bed and you're calling the nurse and you need to go to the bathroom. If the nurse isn't coming. Um, there's, there's typically times where you'll just see like, you know, I'm going to get out of bed and I'm going to go to the bathroom. And there's a scenario where this happened to somebody um, at a hospital that we knew of. We didn't necessarily know this guy directly, but we, you know, we got, we got to know him. And what had happened was is he went in just for like a basic routine surgery that required um, an overnight. And it was the next morning and he was kind of groggy and he got out of bed um, and he went to the bathroom. While he was standing there at the toilet, he passed out and fell backwards because of the sedation. And his neck hit the threshold of the, of the door. And from that point on, he was paralyzed from the neck down in the hospital. Um, that hospital has since sold itself to different people over the last like four times over the last six years. And we can't help but wonder if that was direct result of this gentleman being, having that awful, terrible injury in a hospital, um, a place where you're supposed to be safe right now probably whatever his surgery was initially doesn't even matter now compared to what his current injury is. Yeah. And, Cause now you're on next level. Right. And that just would have been, you know, typically hospitals they'll, they'll have like, you can arm the bed. And if, if it detects the shift of like, if you get out of bed, like it, cha- it, it can detect the, the weight change or like moving around, it'll send an alarm out to a nurse. But generally that alarm won't get out to the nurse until you're already on the ground. So the point of this AI is to, um, the way that it's trained, and we spent the last three years training it and building it, understanding um, what it looks like to be, what a patient looks like in a hospital bed versus a patient getting out of a bed versus a patient falling. Um, and then, so 
that that's the product that we built to, to really understand. We call it like an ambient intelligence that's just sitting in the background, looking and learning and understanding. So if it sees a person enter into a patient room, then it sees that same person, maybe if they end up in a bed, um, now it creates this arming event where it's just always watching. And as soon as it sees somebody doing a movement that we have trained it to predict could be them getting out of bed, we'll let somebody know. And that's that's shaved off close to 30, almost in some instances, it could be almost a minute of an early warning of someone trying to get out of bed before it happening, right? And even if you could just give a nurse five seconds notice before they're getting out of bed would be helpful. But that 30 seconds to a minute um, will solve the fall problem and will allow somebody to get to a room. Now, it won't solve all falls, but really from like a hospital dollars and cents perspective, it costs them a lot of money for every time somebody gets injured in a hospital, not to mention they don't want somebody to be injured in the hospital while they're there. Plus, if you get injured when you fall, it extends your stay. So there's this, there's all these business reasons around it. But my, my reason for it was just selfishly to protect my future self. If I ever end up in a hospital, I want there to be technology around that can save me. Because that, that's really the technology that we provided, my, at least I provided my whole career to hospitals is things that help and save people. Yeah. And I'll be honest with all the time that I spent in startup rooms over the years and, you know, on clubhouse, you're probably one of maybe three services or products that I've seen that there was a consensus that yes, everyone wants to see this uh, put in place because getting a consensus on a product or a service is extremely hard to do. And just the fact that everyone in that room full of professionals was like, yeah, we need this. That was very, very impressive. Plus you had a great, the way you delivered your pitch was really good too. Well, thank you so much. I mean, I, I, I won't. I don't know if I can get out of the through my door now. My head's going to be so big. But yeah, but thank check you. check that ego um, right now. <laughs> you suck, and your kids think that you need to work harder. <laughs> absolutely, you're, absolutely. Your kids are your kids will bring you back down. <laughs> they're not going to let you get a big head about anything. Oh no, oh no. They're the they're the most. Uh, they're savages. Oh, they're beyond. Yeah, savages is the best word for them. Yeah. So, with help AI, I think that's going to be. I think that's going to be a success. You know, I don't, we haven't gone over the numbers of it yet as far as like, you know, the cost and everything else, but anytime you can alleviate lawsuits, uh, injuries, you can expedite recovery time because it's prevented another injury. That's huge. And I don't think there's anyone out there that doesn't appreciate that. I hope so. Um, it, for me, this is the first product that I've actually developed and built that our customers truly need and want. All the other products that we provided are nice to haves and they're, they're helpful, but this one seems to be the one product that can really solve a big need. And I was given such good advice during this pitch and that was focus on the one thing. Generally, I'm not that person. I like to focus on many things and I've been given that advice over the years and sometimes I will focus on one thing and then regret it because I feel like I didn't give myself that opportunity to diversify, but I think in this particular scenario, it was sage advice. And that was focus on that one thing. And it has to be that fall risk, right? And it's just a single device that just does one thing really, really, really well. Yeah. And that's all it's doing. And in healthcare, that's kind of like a no, no, because healthcare loves to spend, they love to buy things that have multiple, you know, they want to get the most bang for their buck. But in this scenario, I think it's, I think it's prime time. And our business model is such that, most of the time when you sell to hospitals, it could take you, and this is the thing that just a lot of people just don't, they can't wrap their mind around is that the first time you meet with the hospital and they love your idea and they want to buy it from you, it could take three to five years for them to actually have the money to do it because they'll put it under a capital purchase, meaning that they have to 
budget for it. And then they need to go back to their board and get board approval on their department budgets. Right. And then they then once they get approval, then when it's time to actually spend the money, then they all have to then they're all fighting to try to get their thing actually approved um, to spend the money. So oftentimes we would get displaced by things like, oh, we need to strike our parking lot or we just need to repave our new parking lot. Sorry, we, we need to do that first before we can you know, put in this hand washing system. So I think for the first time, finally, this is the type of product that won't get displaced by a parking lot, for instance. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I have friends that are in the uh, the medical sales business and that process you just, you just described is spot on. And so if they're willing to write a check and you are cutting yourself out of that you know, two-year cycle, three-year cycle, five-year cycle. How do you see the company continuing to make revenue? Because is this like a one-and-done install, and then it's all no, about so the software updates, or is this what it what it'll be? Is because it be, typically the capital purchase would be the quote-unquote one-and-done install with like if it if it has some software, there would be like an annual software maintenance agreement that you would charge for. In this situation, though. We want to change that paradigm completely. And, you know, there are definitely times in hospitals where they, they will do this. Again, they like to buy things so they can have an asset that gets amortized. You know, they always have a full executive team with very smart CFOs and things that manage their money. So renting things to them is just a big no-no. But this will be a pure rental, not even like a lease option to buy, but a pure rental so that it's just you pay us a monthly fee or an annual fee. And this is your device. And if anything happens to it, we replace it. No questions. Again, just... It's like renting a car, right? That 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 would be the goal here. And when you do, when you when you can present something to a hospital that is in that way and it checks all the right boxes legally and uh, financially and so forth, they will they will go that route and then they can operationalize it, which they would have budget dollars for their operational budget to apply to these things. Meaning that it could be like an '80s movie where you're sitting in a conference room with with the healthcare leader and you present this option to them and you give them a ridiculous good price and you slide a contract across the table. It could be something that they might actually sign that right right in and there. That never happens, by the way. But this is the type of product that could that where that could that scenario could happen, meaning that our sales went from three to five years to two to three months, right? Um, and, and in healthcare, that is unheard of. Like. Under most circumstances, under most businesses, if your sales cycle is two months, you're probably not pushing hard enough. Yeah, and what you've actually created for a business like yours, which is extremely difficult, is actual cash flow, which is everything. Yeah, that, that is our goal. Our goal is cash flow day one. Um, and then we also know that this needs to be installed in a hospital. So we have access to, in our previous lives, and our previous companies, we have access to a group of companies, small businesses across the U.S. and across the world that this is all they do. They provide healthcare technology to hospitals. They're like the boots on the ground, people in the facility that answer the questions. Because when a hospital calls you, if something's not working, you need to be there like within hours, not the next day or day after. You need to be there. So having that local on-site presence is is key to, to, to really um, to grow this. And as a result, those each one of those distributors, they get a protected area, um, and that, that but that protected area comes with um, an annual royalty. So um, there's royalty every month, every year from devices being installed, but then there's also an annual royalty from the distributors that um, that, will, that are paying us to, to be able to sell and have this product and not compete against anybody else um, to sell it. Yeah, no, that's a great business strategy, especially in this field, because in the medical field, 
it's extremely competitive and it's extremely difficult to win those contracts, especially with the, uh, the bigger organizations. So that is a really novel and in my opinion, a much better approach. That sounds like it's extremely effective with my experience. You'd be surprised. There's, there are definitely hospitals that push back against it, but um, this is this is very new, very early. So we, we've only had the opportunity to present it to a half a dozen facilities, and every single one of them resulted in, let's install this for a pilot. How long is the pilot going to be going on for? And then, I guess, after the pilot ends, obviously, that's where you're going to, that's where the rubber meets the road. Yeah, so there's 60-day pilots, um, and two of the pilots so far have already identified and mitigated a potential fall with injury. Um, and that hospital was really excited to talk to us about how quickly can you expand this and how quickly can we get this installed everywhere. Yeah, and I think, I, I don't know if you guys have talked about it yet either. I think nursing homes too are huge for something like this. So that's the, that's the sage advice that also came from this clubhouse room as well as, um, so when I did that pitch, lots of people were excited and many people reached out to me and now another group pulled me in to do another pitch this Friday um, based on that. And what we decided was we should just hold off for a little bit and really see how far we take this um, and how, yeah. how, how, how quickly people will be excited about this because I wasn't, while I knew that this was a great product, I was that the, what I received last Friday was just not at all what I was expecting. I, I thought for sure there would be, you know, sharpen your pencil, do some of these things. But the one piece of advice that came out was one of the gentlemen in there. He's like, I'm a former CIO of six nursing homes. This should be in nursing homes. And I thought, mm, I'm obviously not looking at this because I have a very acute care background. Yeah. Um, but going into the nursing homes was really it's, it's not new for me because we, we spent a lot of time there. But we typically stayed away because they just don't spend money. They don't have a, typically don't have a lot of money. Um, they don't have a lot of money to spend. They're typically against technology just because pretty much everybody in the facility probably wouldn't know how to use it anyway. Yeah. Right? Um, so there's been a lot of that pushback. However, um, getting that feedback, it prompted me to reach out to just this week, several different nursing homes that I, that I know and started pitching this to them. And the level of interest that I've received just on that regard is, is shocking to me. Because <laughs> again, I didn't think that these nursing homes had money to spend. Well, but apparently people falling in these nursing homes is a big deal. Well, okay. So think about this. Nursing homes make the revenue from having living, breathing people in their facilities. If someone is in a, a nursing home facility and they injure themselves to an extent where they need to go into assisted living or, you know, an old folks home or a hospital, they lose that resident. And when you lose that resident, you lose revenue. And it's much like, you know, rental properties and things like that. When you have vacant rooms, that's a bad thing. So the, your best, in your own best interest as a business is to maintain the best health possible for the people who are living at your facility. So if you can mitigate injuries that lead to people being forced to leave your facility, that is huge. Well, we think we can take this to a scenario of, I mentioned, you know, to you earlier, potentially people not needing to be in hospitals as long. But I also think that trickles into people being elderly, being at home more with their family and not having to go into these homes in these extended care homes. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's the, last, so, it's the last place most people want to end up. 
Right. Especially during COVID, there was, you know, some of those numbers you're seeing are just downright shocking. And our, our thought with this product is what we, what are like when this product grows up and it, you know, it can go to college. Um, we want it to be an at-home hospital. We want it to replace the care. We want it to be the standardized um, platform across all of healthcare, all of any type of healthcare, so that you can you can count on this device to be your at-home doctor, your at-home really really like your at-home nurse. Well, right? it builds a profile, knows who you are, it can detect if you've lost weight or not, um, all these different things. But I was like, I have to focus on this fall risk use case first, so that we can get consensus around the technology and get these hospitals and these facilities to understand that. Sorry, I cut you off. But go ahead. Oh, no worries. So think about this. So I know people, you know, right now today that are in their homes and they have uh, issues with equilibrium, whether it's veterans or whether it's older people or people who are having some kind of, uh, you know, health thing going on. I could see this being installed in a personal home because if you're older or you're a veteran or like the number of people I just mentioned, and this can warn a family member or someone near you that, you're about to have a dizzy spell or a fall, or even if it puts off a high-pitched noise that tells you to sit down right where you're at right now before you fall and act as like that early warning device, that also will help people maintain their quality life at their homes. Because a lot of older people, they, they're into it before they even realize that they're falling. Or veterans who have equilibrium issues from IEDs and everything else, they're, they're falling and crashing before they even realize it because the brain isn't recognizing it or they're so you know, consumed with the dizziness that they don't realize what's, what's beginning to happen. So if the machine can be installed in homes and it can be installed in other like workplaces that prevent that, that translates, you know, across the board and people will pay for those devices because they don't want to suffer an injury that puts them into assisted living and then starts that, that cycle of regression. So I could see it being used in many different platforms, but obviously right now the hospitals are your focus for, for good reason. Obviously, like you do, there's a lot of potential here and there's a lot going on. So, you know, who out there would you like to work with? Mm. That's a good question. Yeah. I, know, I, I, and people, this is controversial maybe, but I think Elon Musk is like a Bond villain. Um, I've heard that before. Like a, <laughs> that's what, like a good way. Maybe, that's, what the, but, that's what the NASA guys say. The NASA guys are like, yeah, he's a Bond villain. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, he's got these satellites that could eat other satellites in space. I mean, at least he's working for us, allegedly. He's our villain. Yeah. Um, so, so someone like that, someone in that vein that has these moonshot ideas, I would love to have as our investors. Um, someone that I could just talk to for five minutes once a month, which is like that. They can give me some meta level of the world that I don't see for five minutes is, is what I would want. Um, not necessarily people with money. I mean, obviously money is helpful, but I want, I want some like good advice, right? I want people that can give me that good, good, solid advice that really matters, right? Because people can say things like, oh, focus on this or focus on that. But it's not like the advice of, hey, did you look at this? Because in 10 years, this is going to happen, you know? So like, like a Bill Gates type, right? Someone, someone that, that has that vision um, to see ten years in the future and have the track record of predicting the future the right way. Yeah. So it sounds like you need you want someone who's a futurist, which you yes. know, there's definitely yeah. a couple of those on Clubhouse, and it sounds like you want someone who's got like that, you know, that next hundred years type outlook on things. So um, I got some ideas. Maybe I can link you up with some people that you know, Alex Fair. Uh -huh. is definitely kind of like one of those guys that can, you know, definitely make those connections. 
So okay. you're de you're definitely on your way to working with those those people that you're talking about. Well, that 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 is exciting then, because that is that is our goal. And then, and then I guess the other person I'd want on my team is someone that's like a former uh, CEO at a hospital. Yeah, I could see that. Someone that's had to sign those checks that they don't want to talk about. <laughs> you know, those those like dinner yeah. conversations that nobody really wants to talk about, but they're there. Yeah, like that that that's that that would be the other person. Someone yeah, they can just tell me, hey, do this because. There's these five billing codes will solve, will solve all of our problems, you know? Yeah. And you know, that's another interesting prospect there too, is like with new hospital builds, you know, building out the infrastructure at the beginning stages of the construction process for planning on it being in there kind of like a utility. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And that's in our previous world, like that was where we spawned the capital sales side when we install like nurse call systems and things that that's where we lived. That was where we lived in breathe. We lived in that construction cycle of building new hospitals and pushing things through so i think that's a great idea i need to get on that and then but like if, if i were to round this out the third person type of person i'd want is somebody that's an executive was an executive at a larger insurance company someone that understands the motivations and needs that these insurance companies have to yeah. be Something that's just reimbursable or maybe the insurance company requires you to have some piece of technology to get your rate down. You have some things that you really love and that you do on the side. Do you have any passion? I mean, obviously as an entrepreneur, everything's a passion project, but like, what are your interests? What do you really like doing? Gosh, you know, my, my wife gives me a hard time about this all the time. Um, you know, my, my passion is business. You know, I, I had a hobby young, young when I was in, you know, in high school and stuff, I was a magician. I did really good at it, um, but I, I kind of lost touch. And I, I still dabble in that, but really where my passion lies is in business, whether that's helping others grow their business or just strategizing on business or seeing a cool new idea. Oh, we could do that. Like that is like, that's my hobby. And it took me a long time to understand that. But now that I know that, like that is, I, I really, been able to thrive in that under that environment no yeah i'm the exact same way so i completely relate to that are there any hidden talents that your kids have shown at such a young age as you've gone on that have surprised you oh my goodness um so many things right um yeah because being a parent entrepreneur it's interesting because you're like okay i hope i don't like ruin this kid's life <laughs> because they see the crazy stuff that i'm trying to pull off and hopefully like they learn the right lessons from that experience so like when you're you know, with your, with your daughter who's in her twenties now and your younger kids, what, what abilities and traits developed that surprised you that you didn't see coming? Lack of fear, lack of fear to just go out and do it. There's not a, kids don't have a lot of hemming and hawing around about things. If they want to go do it, they just go do it. Yeah. And it's, it shocks me. Um, and it's, I know that it's because they've watched me just go and do things that made me uncomfortable or things that I knew nothing about and came away having amazing amount of wealth of knowledge from. Yeah. Do you make them work for it when they get rewarded? Do you like, all right, you got chores or do you just, do you just hand them the stuff that they want or how, as a parent, I think, uh, as entrepreneurs, I think, uh, we have to balance out wants and desires. So how do you responsibly raise your kids to where they need to, they appreciate things that you provide for them. How do you make them earn stuff? Oh, man, it's such, such a it's such a slippery slope. So my yeah. my older kids, they 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 suffered from me not being as financially well off and have not having as much. Of course. My younger kids, opposite. Um, that's right, Zoe. Yeah, we have, we have a guest of, appearance. <laughs> <laughs> um, op, my, 
my my younger kids is opposite where I find myself giving them more than what maybe they earned. Yeah. So I constantly have to go back and remind myself that they need to come from essentially nothing if they want to grow and be successful adults. So um, what my kids do quarterly is we go through what they did the last three months and what their goals are the months forward and what they did in the last three months that could be deemed as value generation to our family. Meaning if they did something that provided a lot of value to our family, then they get one of the things that they have on their list. So what I found 20 years ago or so was if I would write something down and tape it to the wall, it almost always happened. Lots of people like to call like law of attraction and all these other things. Maybe that's what it is. I just found that if I, if I wrote something down and I taped it to the wall and I looked at it every day that I would hold myself accountable to it. And next to that wall is the spike. I make my kids do the same thing. They have to write two things. One, one thing they're afraid of and one thing that they're excited about and one thing that they can't live without. And then they have this list of the one things that they can't live without. And I make them change it every single time so that then when we get to a place where they've earned something, then we have these cards of which thing do you actually want? And what I started finding as I started doing this was what they wanted originally isn't at all what they want now. And they started figuring out, maybe I should just wait because if I get this thing that I want right now, I might want something else later. And that other thing that I want later, I'm more excited about it than I am this. It's things like I want to refill my Fortnite, my V-Bucks in Fortnite, right? Things like that. I want to, um, I want to buy this game. And, and it, it, it started now. And what it's turned into is now they, now they ask for like tangible things that they really want. They'll ask me for like books that they want to read. Which I'm like, really, really, really want to read this book? They're like, yeah, they, they think this is really great. Um, and it, it really, I don't know, it's really grounding them. And I hope it's the right direction. And I keep trying to come up with a better way to do this. But so far, this has worked really well where they're not asking for things all the time and expecting things. Um, and they're earning things. And then they're having this aha moment when they're like, oh, I guess I didn't really want that. I, I wish my parents would have taught me this, but, um, well, your dad was busy saving the world. So <laughs> it's true. It's true. It's true. That is a really, I think that's a really smart way of looking at it. I, th- I know like in my family, we're always trying to figure out what works. And, you know, the one thing I've learned is every kid's different. Every kid requires, you know, different, you know, inputs, outputs, and it just matter of figuring out what works for you guys. And there's no, there's no rhyme or reason to it. Really. It's just all biology and development and everything else and environmental exposure. So at at the very least, I'm just trying to instill like a good work ethic in my children for now and (laughs) work our way up from there. Yeah, I think that's the one thing that I want to make sure my kids have is a good work ethic. I don't want to raise some lazy, entitled children. I know. I think everything's (laughs) handed to them. I think we've had enough of that in the culture. But I mean, there's a lot of good, there's a lot of great kids out there and like everyone gives the current, you know, up and coming like millennials and everyone else a hard time. But, you know, guess what? we're bringing like Y2K kids into the military. Now we're, those kids are 20 years old who were born during, you know, 2001 and nine 11 and all that. Thank you. So don't be too hard on the upcoming generation because. Well, so that is actually absolutely my daughter. She's 20 years old, was born in 2001 and she is in the Marine Corps. Yeah. That's huge. Think about that. Like she's a warfighter. 
And she has all the incentive of the world because of what she's grown up with. And I just, I don't understand it. I, 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 I would like want to empathize with my kids so bad of what they've gone through that I didn't have to go through. As yeah. A, and I just empathize with them. Like my younger kids and masks and things. I just think, man, what is that like? Well, think about I mean, this. Sitting in class all day with a mask on just seems. Oof. Think about this. Like, like our parents grew up with the Cold War. You and I grew up a little, through a little bit of the Cold War through the eighties, and then we went into you know uh, Desert Storm with our parents, and then we had a very extended period of peace. You know, for the most part, from the Gulf War all the way up to nine eleven. So, majority of our youth, you know, as young kids, was spent in peacetime in the nineties. These kids today have grown up much like kids in Afghanistan and Iraq, even though per se, the war really hasn't been felt here at home, they still have grown up with the United States being in a perpetual war of, of some kind, whether it's war in the Middle East or if it's war on culture or if it's war on something. Like Kids have spent 20 years at war in some way, shape or form. And some have are now going to actual war where they're going to get shot at and everything else going on. And, I believe that, you know, service should be voluntary. I don't really believe that we should have a draft or anything like that. So the people who do step up, I have great respect for, no matter what their age is. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, you're putting your life, you're trading your life for everyone else's. Yeah. And that's not to take away from anyone else out there, but just, it just goes back to my point. Like the kids today, they're stepping up in a big way and they need to, because they're the next generation coming in because, you know, guys like me, we're going to retire in the next, you know, five to 10 years and we're out. So it's going to be the next generation that begins to carry that burden and everything else. So every generation is equally as important, but it's going to, it's like the, the old adage goes hard, hard, hard times make hard men, hard men make good times, good men, good times make soft men, soft men make hard times. And we're, we're in that cycle right now. (laughs) We're, we're in the hard times and it's going to make a whole nother hard generation and uh, just give you some like interesting facts. So after World War II, something like 40% of entrepreneurs were veterans. Now today, something like only like 1% to 3% of veterans are entrepreneurs. That's how much it switched over the decades. Wow. So you're saying that 40% of entrepreneurs used to be veterans. Used to be veterans, yeah, because they were wow. w- willing to take risks. There were a lot of benefits after World War II to start things. And so a lot of people went and worked for themselves because let's be honest, if you can, if you can beat Hitler, you can run a business. But nowadays there's a lot less risk taking in the veteran community. And granted, there's a lot more opportunity to go work for Amazon and other like companies. So for world war two, they had to create their own opportunities because we didn't have quite the same environment going on business wise. And, you know, things were obviously were a lot different then, but that, that number, I might be wrong on the percentage-wise for modern-day veterans and the actual number, but it is extremely low. I would say it's at least less than 5% for modern-day veterans to start their own business and be entrepreneurs. And it's even less likely for a veteran to be an entrepreneur in fintech or AI right now as well. So there's a real there's a real lack of veteran uh, representation there. Is, is that because, I'm just inferring here, is there like less support for the veterans? Like emotionally to go in these things versus what it used to be like was there like a big push for veterans to start a business or was it just this weird not weird but this cultural thing that caused that to occur it's cultural because there's a lot of um, institutions out there that provide veterans support to start Mm -hmm. businesses and to like get up and going 
And there's a lot of business, you know, easy business loans and things like that that are in place for veterans. It's a matter of desire, want, and you know, when people spend a lifetime of taking risks, you know, sometimes they decide to play it safe. And sure, there's a lot of benefits to going and working for, you know, these larger companies. You got your all your health benefits taken care of. You you know where you're going to be. You've got your paycheck, and there's nothing wrong with that. But there's just a lot less risk taking going on uh, post military career, which I find very fascinating. It's very fascinating. I started reading this book called The uh, Fourth Turning. Uh-huh. Um, and Casey Neistat is. Uh, no, I'm not familiar with them. He's a he's a YouTuber. It, it, he's he was one of like the original guys that started blogging well, ten years or so ago. Uh-huh. Um, his brother. These guys are like filmmakers, and they're, they're, they have this really cool style. But his brother mentioned this book called The Fourth Turning, and I started reading it. And he explained it to how that every twenty years. Is called a turning, and then within that twenty years, there's an eighty-year period that marks this quote-unquote turning, and it changes every eighty years. And he started, and this book goes into detail about um, all the different twenty-year periods that occurred, and then the eighty-year periods that occurred. And what the conjecture is right now is that we're in the fourth turning, which is the last set of the twenty years, and we're in the uh, the chaos period of the twenty years, where there's generally wars that are occurring, there's some type of famine or some pandemic or something there's something bad that happens to humanity and then after this the next 20 years is like the years where we're rebuilding and then it then that leads into like the arts and things and then it then it repeats itself but so it's interesting is our kids are now the ones like you said to be here to bring this world up into a different place and i'm just so excited to see where we go even the next few years because all of the entrepreneurs that sat in their house scared last year i guarantee i've come up with some really cool shit and i can't wait to see it oh I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's been simmering and it's actually gotten the full attention of the person that needs to give it the full attention because of the time allocated because just stopping from covid what do you think this time period is going to be called what do you think 2020 in the history books like what do you think let's go what do you think we're going to call this because we're humans we have to market everything what is the marketing word for the last year? Well, I mean, if you look at like the roaring 20s that we had last year, <laughs> it would probably be something along like, you know, for for us in the 20s. If you look if you look back on the 20s, it was a very formative time, uh, you know, for this generation, our generation. So, you know, we had like t- we had like the tech boom. Let me think about this for a sec. That's a good question. I often thought about it a couple times. So much has happened. There's been so much loss. There's been so much learned. There's been so much destroyed. I would qualify like the 30s we're going to, like you just said, as reconstruction. So it's more about destruction than anything. So it would be something along that lines. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it's just like this decade of despair, you know, this decade of yeah, it's been a it's of been... nothing occurring. And then it gets this capstone of the of the pandemic. And then you mentioned Eric Weinstein earlier. He's got this whole theory that we haven't innovated or created anything substantial with new since like the forties. And it's with me every day that I, I, I got a problem with that statement. His, his, I guess his conjecture is that we've only innovated on top of things that were already created, that there's been this gutting of the, 
university system, the, the you know, the professors and so forth, the, the guys that write papers and come up with new things like theoretical physics, for instance, there hasn't been a lot of breakthroughs there, even though they, they say that there's breakthroughs. His whole thing is that we're continuing to perpetuate nothingness and we're expecting something to come at, come, come from it as a result. And he says, this is exactly why Trump became an office. And then he, he jumps into that whole kayfabe thing of what professional wrestling is and how it's, you know, yeah, it's real, but it's not. Now I agree with him on that point as far as like perpetuating nothingness, because there's, there's a big difference between like third world and first world when it comes to, you know, your, your demands on life and, and thriving and succeeding. There's a huge difference between like that third world experience and the first world experience here in the first world. We've, we boiled everything down to, uh, we have time to fight about nothing. And he's 100% right. We're, we're literally fighting ourselves over nothing. And politics is turning us against each other, which is, you know, by design. And so he's right in that aspect. And when it comes to our modus of operandi as a Western culture, we've been, we've been very much like nuclear family. And on fame and money is not what you need in life. It's not going to make you happy and it's not going to make you more fulfilled. That's why a lot of times when people have the chance to break away from Western culture, they generally don't come back. And so if you look at like early settlers in the United States, a lot of settlers and pioneers went and joined the Indian communities. And in the Indian community, there was no, there was no wealth and fame. It was just all about hunting, you know, finding your balance with nature and surviving. And it was about your community and it was about helping each other for the most part. And yes, there were different wars between the tribes and everything else, but the whole perpetualness of our, of our culture for the last, you know, 50, 60 years. Yes. We have not innovated our culture, you know, that much. Everything's been focused on having a job, uh, providing for your family. And then that was, that was it. That was the whole show. But what we've learned and begin to change our mindset on is, you know, very much like, you know, our focus is, should be more on community culture and, you know, trying to make everyone's quality of life better. And we're so distracted by social media and other things out there that I would say social media has anchored itself in that exact statement that you, that you just stated. So to take that one step further, and this is the thing in this, I believe that the AI, like general intelligence is already here. And I think it takes very weird forms. I think it takes the form of the crowd on social media. I think it takes the form of cryptocurrencies. I think that the amount of time and energy and resources that are pushed into these things only makes these systems smarter and more understanding of what it is that they're providing. These social media companies are so successful because this AI has figured out how to hack our brains and keep us engaged. The level of notifications that I get just from clubhouse is intense. Yeah. I turn mine off and I don't, I, I, I turn them on and off because sometimes I'll catch a notification and it's somebody that I'm not necessarily following that I want to hear. Yeah. And I wouldn't have gotten into that room otherwise without that one random notification. So I've got this weird FOMO kicking in and I'm like, wow, the algorithm already has me latched in. It knows that I have this FOMO and it's going to keep pounding me with these notifications until I tap one. Yeah. And with some people that will fade, like with me that faded the whole FOMO thing. And luckily I was able to pull myself out of it, but I think, I think you're right. And when it comes to that, the only, pr the only problem that comes with that AI that you're talking about is 
Facebook and all that stuff was created by fundamentally, fundamentally flawed people that designed these programs. So the AI system is flawed because its human creators were extremely flawed that created it to where it, you know, it feeds off of your anxiety, your stress, your anger, your fear. So those are the things that are, that plug into that base human element of, you know, fight or flight. They have completely plugged into fight or flight on a digital level. So because of that, these systems predominantly are going to drag us down because of that. And they need to like, that's one thing that I like about clubhouse right now is that, yes, let's say that's part of an AI that's at least comes off as very positive for the most part. It's an extremely positive place for the moment, but you know, if it makes more money being running the other flawed algorithm that pits people against each other, that's where it's going to go. Yeah. And I just wonder if this is just like, um, meta version of humanity that when humanity gets together and creates too much and they're they oversaturate things that this is the result of what humans do because we can't all we can't just let one person be in charge and we try to that but we just can't we just well anything individualistic well i think what you're trying to hit on is anything in excess is bad for us yes because you drink too much water it's going to kill you (laughs) you eat too many sweet sweets it's going to kill you you get too much sun it's going to kill you so that's the problem with social media and everything that we have, like in the digital realm, it's all in excess. We don't, we're not on a diet for it. I could have all the Amazon, all the Amazon boxes in the world delivered to my house and I never have to leave. That will probably kill me. I could have, you know, too much of a, of a good time at a party. And if I overdo it, that's going to kill me. So partying is going to kill you. So everything in excess is like it part of like human nature. It's going to get you. So unless you're able to moderate and you have discipline, it's game over. You just don't know it yet. You're already dead. Very interesting thought right there. Yeah. Very interesting thought. Well, no one makes it out of here alive, so you're, we're all dead mm-hmm. anyway. It's <laughs> just a matter of how good of a time we're going to have while we're here on this planet. Or when do we realize we're all dead already in the Matrix or something? <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, one thing about being an entrepreneur, I always feel like I'm, I'm really living when I'm doing entrepreneurial stuff. I really do because I get to meet great people like you. I get to have great experiences for the most part, you know, good, bad, indifferent, negative. It, it all has made me a better human being. And, you know, children by far have made me a better human being. Like having kids, it really has. It's a very grounding experience. The kids, the kids show you what all your flaws are and remind you that you are not at all who you think you are. <laughs> oh, I know. Um, so we, uh, we're at the end of our time here. Do you have any uh, parting words of wisdom for the audience that you'd like to share? Just thank you. Um, thank you for having me. And I, this has been a great conversation. I think it's opened my eyes up to many things. And it's, this has given me more opportunities than it's taken. And so I will definitely pay it forward in the future. So thank you. Yeah, it's our uh, podcast for today, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining us as always and look forward to many, many more great conversations. And uh, hopefully uh, you'll be more than happy to come back on as guests in the future as things progress. Thank you so much.